Hello and welcome to the All Ears podcast by Give Her Up with me, Jeremy Inson. Give Her Up is a non-profit organisation that was developed to help rugby union players, club members, volunteers and coaches feel more comfortable talking openly and honestly about their mental health and well-being. In this series we're talking to women and men from across rugby union to find out how their involvement in the sport has affected their mental health in good and bad ways and to share their stories and the lessons they've learned thanks to being involved in Rugby Union. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the second part of episode 8. I'm talking to Saracens prop Ollie Hoskins about his rugby journey that has taken him from Australian team Western Force to the English champions and the lessons he has learned along the way. We begin this episode with him receiving his first Australia call-up. For those of us who wouldn't even ever come near being capped for their country, can you explain just that pride and, and how it came yeah. about? Because, of course, you were playing over here. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the uh, the Gitto law was still in effect. Yeah. They hadn't sort of made the tweaks. Yeah, uh, I got uh, I got a, I got called up completely out of the blue. I um I played for Iris the day before, um, and we... We had this amazing draw against Saracens. We we're down to 14 men and we had this big comeback. We came back from like 26 points down with 14 men and got this draw against Saris. And I was on the biggest high after that. Like such a cool game to be a part of. And then the the day after that, that evening, I was over at a friend's house. So outside of outside of rugby, and this has been really massive for me. Outside of rugby, I'm like a, a massive nerd. I've got these two polar opposite personalities. Like I've got this like physical rugby playing guy in my professional life and in my off-field life i'm like this i'm pretty like i'm pretty s- s- quiet nerdy type of guy and i was over at my mate's place playing dungeons and dragons with about six six of us playing D um like and then i had my phone kept going off in my pocket while we we're playing D and we don't have, we have like a no phone policy when we're playing because we're all locked in and we're playing characters and we're like doing our thing Absolutely. uh yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a serious business um and then we had a break and i went and checked my phone i had all these um messages from uh petrus duplicy yeah. so he was a he, i played with him for two years at irish he was massive in my in for me back in the day as well um he was kind of player coaching in a way he was coming towards the end of his career but he was always this like amazing scrummager me and him were like the, we both played the same positions but we couldn't be any different he was like lives for scrums all he wanted to do was scrum and the rest of the rugby was a bit like yeah Whereas for me, I'm like, I want to play rugby and scrums are just like, Ugh. and we were just like these polar opposites. So, but he was massive for me in helping me develop as a scrummager. Um, and he was doing the Wallaby scrum coaching. Um, and he had a bunch of, had a bunch of missed, missed calls and texts and messages from him. Um, so I gave him a call. I knew the Wallabies were coming to London the next week and they played Scotland earlier that day, actually. And two of the boys got injured. And like, I knew the law, I didn't, it literally didn't cross my mind for a second that uh, I'd never spoken to all these before. Didn't cross my mind for a second that I was even in any sort of contention because they had these laws and I'd never spoken to him. So I thought Petra's just like, oh, let's catch up for a beer or something while you're in London and see how you're going. Cause we meet him got on really well when he was at Irish. Um, and I remember going to the other room and picking up the phone and him being like, yeah, mate, um, Alan and Tony have gone down. I think we're going to need you in Wallaby's camp tomorrow. And I just like, was just it was just weird like numb feeling when I was like excuse me like can you say that again please he was like yeah we might need you in Wallabies camp tomorrow and I was like I'm not allowed to play for the Wallabies am I like and he was like mate we're in a bit of a crisis so they've they've changed the laws and um we're not saying that you are going to play but we need you there for cover essentially it's like come and train with the boys for the week 
it's not confirmed yet i'll i'll get hit you i'll get get back to you tomorrow morning um but like be on standby there's a good chance you might need to come to wally's camp tomorrow and i was like oh my god this is ridiculous so like i was like thank you yeah awesome i'd love to Oh, the phone and went back to try and play, try and keep playing it in. I was like, sorry guys, I've got to cut this short. I literally couldn't, my mind was just racing. I was just like, had this elation in my body. I was like, this is everything. I remember looking back at that conversation with my dad being like, oh, when I was five, being like, I want to play for the Wallabies one day. And like, I didn't, even after this, I was like, there's no way I'm playing. Like I'll just be there for injury cover. But for me, like, even if I never played, it was just such a validating thing to have, to be like, they even considered me to be in a position to be an injury cover to play for the Wallabies. For me, that was like, oh man, like I'm heading in the right direction. This is awesome. Um, so yeah, the next day I did, hadn't heard anything. So I was like, oh, maybe it's not happening. So I went back, went into Irish training um, and then I was in the gym and the, one, the coach, Les Kiss came in and was like, oh yeah, mate, Wallabies need you at, Lens, uh, at the Lensbury. They need you in Wallabies camp. And I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. So as I was walking out of Irish's uh, training ground um, I went and chatted to us to our psych for a bit and I told him what's going on and like I had this really good relationship with him we've worked very closely over the last year and like I've been very vulnerable with him and chat with him about everything like I've cried to him so many times about that my frustrations around rugby and all this sort of stuff and I spoke to him and like told him what's going on and I was just like teared up and was just like just felt so just felt so proud of myself and it was something that like I'd always been such been put so much pressure on myself to do well and stuff. And sometimes when you're in this environment, you never really step back and sort of smell the roses and look at it and be like, and have that really feeling of pride about yourself. You're always kind of next job, next job. You have a good game, but the next game's next week. And you just like move on to the next thing, next thing, next thing. You never really have time to sit back and be like, oh damn, I'm actually doing a really good job here. Like this is, and you give yourself a sort of pat on the back. And it was kind of that moment where I spoke to Mike and was just like, this is happening. I'm like driving to go, go, be in Wallaby's camp right now. Um, and yeah, I went over to the, went over to the Lansbury and had no kit, nothing, just like rocked up to the hotel and was like, hi, where do I go see? And they gave me a room key and stuff. And then I had to drive home and get a bunch of my gear for the week. Um, and this was on the Monday. Uh, I did a session with them Monday. Uh, Monday, they weren't training because they played the Sunday and it was a short turnaround. On the Tuesday, we did like a walkthrough sort of thing. And because Alan and Taniello both got concussed the, the week before, they were, if they were going to play, they weren't going to train the whole week. They were just going to get their, past their HIAs, pretty much do no training, then go play on the Sunday, on the Saturday. Um, so I was like walking through the plays and stuff. I had just got given this massive book of stuff that I had to just like, I was in my hotel room before the thing, just like trying to learn all these new plays and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I walked through then. And then Wednesday morning, we had a team meeting where they were like, announcing the team so if even if only one of them was injured and the other one wasn't i still wasn't going to play because then they were going to move james slipper from loose head over to tight head and have one of them and then i'd be like reserve essentially if the, one of them else going to just the only way i was going to play is if both of them were out um and we had this meeting the meeting wednesday morning and at the end of the meeting they're like okay here's, here's the team for england and i was like okay. i literally was and they the way they did it, it wasn't like they just put the team up on the thing they do like in and out they go like number one this number two and they go all the way through and it got to like number 18 and they're like Oliver Hoskins. And I was just like, I just couldn't fathom that what I'd just heard. Cause I'd like the normal progression of playing international rugby is you get picked for a training camp. 
And then you like that announcement comes out and then you spend a couple of weeks training with the team and then they cut the squad down for a game week. And then you're in the squad for the game week. And then they announce the team. You have this like step-by-step progression where you're like kind of get an inkling if you're in the mix or not. Whereas I went from Saturday playing against Saracens having never spoken to the Wallabies in my life to getting a call on Sunday to getting announced in a team to play against England on Wednesday. It was like this super accelerated, crazy thing. Um, And they, my name got called and they didn't give me a heads up or anything and i just once again i just couldn't believe what i was hearing and i just vibrate like crying in this team meeting in front of all these blokes i literally met two days ago i just couldn't fathom what was going on um and it was just like the cooler it was i'll never ever forget that feeling because i remember just like it was like some existential i just felt myself like almost leave my i was just sitting there and i was i was there but i wasn't really there i was just like my mind was just exploding um and then yeah then i put it in the family whatsapp and my and it was just like this crazy build up to that game where once it got announced that i was in the team and all this sort of stuff it was just like my phone is never blown up like that in my life, just like thousands and thousands of messages from people I haven't spoken to for ages, guys I played like junior rugby with, haven't spoken to for like 20 years, getting messages from everyone. It was just this amazing buildup. And the fortuitous of it all that I'm playing in Twickenham, which is like a home game for me. I I live less than 10 minutes down the road. My wife could come. My mom was in the country, luckily visiting her mom, uh, my dad somehow managed during COVID to get a plane ticket on a whim, managed to do all his testing and stuff. He flew in the day of the, the morning of the game. So like, and yeah. And then once I kind of ran out after the warm up to do the national anthems, I like looked across directly in front of me, mum, dad, wife, best mate. And I was like, Oh, singing the national anthem, saw them crying again. It was just like this crazy emotional experience of just like this culmination of such a mentally draining sort of journey to get to where I was. And then if, as I said, like less than nine months before that, I was crying in the change room after getting dragged 25 minutes into a premiership game. Cause I couldn't, I just couldn't figure the scrummaging stuff out to working with somebody and really sort of getting to the crux of, of why this, I had this mental block around this stuff to then standing at playing at, at Twickenham in front of my family for the Wallabies in front of like 80,000 people. It was just like such a quick, but super cool transition. Um, and then the game itself, oh, I played for 13 minutes and it literally felt like that. Like it's almost like a blur. I remember I made a few tackles, had a few scrums that went all right. And then it was just over, but the whole build up and this, it was more for me of what, what that cap signifies than the cap itself. It was just like the culmination of like so much, so, so much, work mentally and physically that like i've got the cap now and it's still upstairs in my room i've got that number and even if it's like 30 minutes is all i ever get to play like that it just signifies so much to me and it is really one of those things that sometimes i open my cupboard and the cap and the jersey are there and i can just like be like yeah i i I did that it's just a little reminder of like i achieved literally that five-year-old's dream of doing it even if it was just a little little flash in the pan it's it's there and i'm always going to be wallaby number 949 to bring us back to the start of the season um with the yeah. uh, start of this season 2022 23 yeah. uh, obviously the way it ended for london irish was there any sort of inkling at the start of the season 
what was going on on the financial side, the fact that uh, Mick Cross and the, the owner was mm. trying to sell. Um, were there any worries, any hints that of what was to come? Not at the start of the season. The first sort of hint we got was Mick came out in the press about maybe towards like towards the start-ish of the year saying that he, he'd like he's he, and like looking back at it now he worded it really weird weirdly he came out with an article saying like oh i'd sell the team for a pound or something was like the headline and at the time i was like oh just me like i think he's been, owned the team for a while he just wants to sell let sell the team that's kind of just how business is like i guess um and this was just after wasson was to went down so like people were a bit like oh god what's going on and like the media was sort of you know Who's the next one it. almost, yeah. Exactly. They were looking for something. And I was like, the media just putting, obviously Mick wants to sell and these other two teams have gone down. So the media are like, oh, this will get us lots of clicks if we just say, oh, no, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't think anything of it. And then I knew that a few times when boys were negotiating new contracts with the club during the season, that they were like getting that, that, that they were asking lots of questions about the long-term security of the club and all this sort of stuff. And I, I thought it was weird. I was like, man, we're fine. Mick just wants to sell. We're all good. We just moved to London. We're doing super well. Everything's all good. Like, um, and then it all kind of went quiet. Boys started resigning with the club, and we were told we heard about this like American people that wanted to buy the club probably about pretty early on in the season. We thought that was just happening in the background, and Mick was going to sell the club. And if he didn't, he just like kept going. Um, and then towards the back end of the year. We we had after our St. Patrick's Day game, we beat Northampton and we had like a, a five weeks in between games because we went from the, the Northampton game, then we had those two weeks of Europe. It was like the round of 16 in the quarterfinals of Europe and we didn't make the knockout stage zero. So we had two weeks off then. And then it was back into the premiership and we had our bye. And then we'll play in the week off that. So it was like four or five weeks we didn't have a game. So they gave us, after the Northampton game, we had a week off completely. So me and the wife went away to Wales with the dog and we were staying in Airbnb um, and this article came out um, overnight saying, oh, a lot of Irish players aren't going to get paid this month. I think a payday was meant to be the next day or something. Um, and I woke up and my dad had sent me it over WhatsApp. And I like, I obviously the stuff had been early in the year and everything had been fine and we'd be getting paid and we'd be going really well. And I was like, oh, didn't think anything of it. My dad sent me the article and like, I feel bad now, but I kind of like, I sent my dad a text back me like, dad, I'm on holiday. I'm trying to, don't send me this fake news. Like all this does is give me anxiety. Like, what are you doing? And then like, I kind of snapped him a bit, which I, I wish didn't now, but still. Um, and then Irish came out with a statement being like, oh no, f this is false. Everyone's getting paid. Don't worry about it. Um, and they kind of, that was what they put out into the media. And they sent us all emails being like, don't worry about this news. Mick and these new investors are just having conversations with RFU and PRL. And obviously the journalist has got a whiff of this and tried to make a new story out of it. Um, and we all got paid later that month and everything. And we we're like, okay, yeah, sweet. This transaction is going to go, go through. And then we went on with the rest of the season. We went and played, we went and the rest of that break, we were training and then we played Saracens and then leading into the last game of the season uh, against Exeter, I think we we're meant to get, we meant to get paid on like the Friday before that, <clears throat> the Friday before the Exeter week. Um, and we came into training on the Friday morning and none of us have been paid. I didn't even, I just, I like, I don't know, when, once you, once you're an employee for so long, like some, some, you don't really, sometimes payday comes around like, oh God, I've got us payday. Um, and, but we didn't get paid that day. And I came in and boys were talking about, it. I was like, oh yeah, we actually didn't. That was weird. Um, so we all like kept going on with the day. Um, and it got to just before our, we went to have a team meeting before the rugby session and boys were like, now it's like 
1 p.m. on paid and we still hadn't been paid. We usually get paid the night before the last day of the mm. month. Um, and so I like took our takes because I was like a bit of a, I was a senior player. Like I took our team managers aside. I was like, mate, boys are like worrying a little bit. Like what's going on? We had, boys haven't been paid. And AJ, our manager was like, oh yeah, you're true actually. Let me go speak to the finance girl. And he went and spoke to the finance chick. And then we all got a text through being like uh, all staff or whatever team meet, come to this team meeting. And our CEO uh, was in this team meeting. And then also this other, other guy who I didn't know. Um, and our CEO pretty much went like, yeah, we're waiting for funds to come in from the US. Uh, we don't have money right now to pay you, um, but this is this is this guy's a representative in the UK of this US consortium who's gonna, you know, who are looking to buy the club and everything's fine. We're just waiting for this money to come in. He gave a thousand excuses, international bank transfers and checks and blah 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 blah, all this sort of stuff, and assured us that we'd get paid either tomorrow or by Monday next week. Money was coming in. Um, so this obviously, like boys, like this is pretty weird like what's going on but at, this, at the time we're kind of like i guess like none of us know about these international business transactions we rugby players don't really understand it and it's like i guess i've sent money overseas and sometimes it can take a little bit of time I was like, okay i guess um so we had this real weird and this guy this guy spoke to us about the about the u.s people and they're going to buy the club and this is the vision and all stuff and everyone's like okay sweet this sounds actually legit we're going to be like we're going to be like one of the richest clubs in the prem when this happens it's going to be fantastic um and then we went out and trained afterward, which is a bit weird because we just had this weird meeting about not getting paid. And then we went out and trained. Um, and then Monday comes around, no money. Same sort of thing. Another meeting with these two people being like, don't worry, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Next day, nothing, nothing, nothing. It got to until the day before the game. It got to the next Friday and we still hadn't been paid. And we'd been assured every single day that the next day it's coming, the next day it's coming, the next day it's coming. Um, so then the RPA uh, gave us advice to essentially hand in these breach of contracts notes notices to the club because they breached our contract and we were worried as a, as a playing group we were worried like we if we haven't been paid has the insurances been paid are we insured to play this game all this sort of stuff like it's a lot more than just like oh we want our money give it to us like it's all about this the safety of the product and all this are we insured like boys i'm going to go out there and beat the crap out of ourselves if we're not going to don't have the level of protection that we that we are so, so fundamental to. when you're playing a contest sport exactly um and like the like, I remember the we just we, we had like a meeting before about even if we haven't been paid, we're definitely insured. All this sort of stuff. We had all these assurances. I remember the the session before we had this meeting about insurances and stuff, and it was the last session before we played Exeter. We still hadn't been paid, and one of the young tens was out there, and he did his ACL in this training session, and we were just like, oh my god, I hope these guys aren't pulling the wool over our eyes because this kid is going to be like in a world of hurt if we're not uninsured right now and everyone was just like oh my god um and we had this so then we had it in these breach of contract notices um we we're about to we got advised that morning um and then i think that kind of put a little rocket up the mick our owner to be like okay maybe we should probably try and sort this out so then we had this like zoom meeting the senior players were on there mick was on there the guy um the rpa PRL, RFU, and these guy, this guy representing this US consortium was on there. And they were all chatting all this business mumbo jumbo and all this sort of stuff, which I didn't really understand. And then it kind of got to the point where they were like, this, the US people and Mick were going like back and forth about, oh, I don't want to pay. I'm going to pay all this sort of stuff. And then eventually Mick just like pressed the button and paid us all sort of just <laughs> before the game. But once again, in the, on that Zoom, we had, there was like, we had such, 
solid assurances from this US people. They told us who was part of this consortium, what their plan was, this five-year plan, who the who the investors were, all this sort of stuff. They told us all this. Um, we got paid, went and played the extra game. We won. We finished fifth. It was the best finish in London Irish, the last 15 years in London Irish's history. It was like a like we played some awesome rugby that year. Um, and we finished fifth and then after that after that week after being paid like everyone was like okay we're sweet it's going to get done in the next month i mean it's just i guess teething pains of business or something i don't know um and we went into the off season we had our exit meetings had our exit medicals we had pre-season meetings with the boys who were next next year we outlined our goals for pre-season we had our one-on-ones with coaches about reviewing our season now what they want us to work on for the next all the standard exit meeting sort of stuff when it's the off season, I had like our silly Sunday, our big team sort of social to end the year, all dressed up, had a great time. Um, and then a couple of days after that into our off season, the RFU like gave us a heads up that they're going to put this sort of deadline on on this deal with Irish to get done. Well, that was sort of June time, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been June, start of June. Because this, this like us getting paid late was the May, it was like the end of May. And this was the start of June, I think, or sometime or mid-May to June. Something like that. They, they said like the club got a couple of weeks, got like three or four weeks now to essentially get this deal done or you guys are suspended from all competitions and all sort of stuff. And I remember reading that email being like, oh crap, I thought like, we're fine now. It's off season. Like if this takes a couple of months, the season's not signed until October. We've got heaps of time. We'll just go like, we'll be fine. Um, and then this thing came out and I was like, oh my. So I called my agent straight away and I was like, like what actually is going on? Like, is, we, is this like, is this, and he was, and my agent was pretty frank with me. He's like, I don't think it's like tipping point. Yeah. There's still a couple of weeks, but he's like, we need to prep for the worst case scenario here. And he's like, and he laid it out to me black and white i'm very i'm grateful for my agent he doesn't mince his words with me um he was like i want you to be prepared for what could happen if this does go it's not, i'm not saying it's going to but this is the reality of it is that uh if this go if this doesn't go through and you guys are suspended this was uh yeah this was june he said you're not going to get paid june uh yeah no so this is this is end of may would have been the next paycheck it's like you're not going to get paid at the end of may you're not going to get paid at the end of the june and if we're lucky enough to get a contract your first paycheck won't be until end of July because contracts uh, July to July yeah. and you sign up from July 1st thing. I so it's like the next payday won't be to the end of July. Um, you're all going to flood the market at the same time. You're going to have to take a massive pay cut uh, if you do get a job. Um, and he was just like black and white with me because he just wants to know the reality of it. And he's like, you guys couldn't be coming on the market at the worst, at a worst time. It's end of the season. Everyone else's salary caps have been spent. Now, all of a sudden, 50 players flood the market, along with all the Worcester and Wasp guys who already are still on the market. Um, it's going to be rough. And I was just like, he said all this, and I was like, oh, man, this is crazy. Like, I just signed a two-year deal with Irish. Like, I was, I was like, okay, this is crazy. This is what I understand why he's saying. It, it, and I put the phone down, and I sat there for a second and thought about it, and I just burst into tears. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so stressful. Like, so much anxiety all this illusion of security you have when you sign a contract, there's not much security in professional sports. Like we usually sign one to two year deals and every, every year or two, you don't know if you've got a job the next cycle. You're just always kind of trying to audition and play as well as you can to put yourself in the shop window to get another gig, another gig, another gig. Um, and this like, usually when you just sign an extension or whatever, you got two years, that's like the, when you're not coming into a contract year, it's kind of the year you can be like, Oh, okay. I don't have to, 
worry about negotiating and all that sort of stuff. Like I've got a two-year deal and this is the first year of my two-year deal. And I'm like, okay, we're good. Me and the wife are like, okay, we're sweet for the next couple of years. Let's just like relax, play some good rugby, enjoy ourselves. Um, and then this conversation, I was like, oh crap, like this is actually a reality now. We could be on our ass, like no, no income coming in, don't know where I'm playing, no geographical stability, no idea where I'm going to be living, any of this sort of stuff. And at this point, it was still, it still wasn't game over, but he just laid out to me. And I was the first real like hit of this waves and waves. I've never had physical anxiety in my life. I get nervous about stuff, but I've never had like physical reactions to anxiety in my life. I remember we, me and my wife had booked, we went to Barcelona at the end of the season. We we'd had like four or five days in Barcelona. And the whole time we were there with this stuff, because we were like getting updates every day. We we're on Zoom meetings, trying to figure out if we got jobs, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I remember just walking through, like we're in the Barcelona is a beautiful place. Like, and I remember walking through the city center and stuff, and just like all of a sudden getting this like shortness of breath, and like full on, like feeling lightheaded and getting shortness of breath, and I just like couldn't, my mind just could not switch off, and I was actually getting physical reactions to the anxiety of like potentially losing my job and all this sort of stuff. First time I ever had it, and I was like, this is wild um and it really really messed with me um and then the next couple of weeks were just more of the same of this having absolutely no idea what's going on and it's and the same for my wife like she just she just started a new job um we loved our life here we meant to have all this as i said security of stability of where we're going to be the next couple of years and all that sort of stuff and i had to be like she was just as involved in it too because it affects her life just as much as it affects me um and yeah and then the next couple of weeks played out and the worst ended up did <laughs> did happening and the deal didn't get done and like even even the day before the day of all this sort of stuff and we negotiated that like we got like a week extension on the deadline so mick paid half of our salaries to give us like a week extension on this deadline essentially and even literally until a minute before this deadline we were getting assurances we're fine. Don't worry. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And in my mind, I was like, this is obviously just two businesses sort of peacocking against each other being like, take it down to the 11th hour, see who get the best deal for the club. And then it will get sold and we're fine. I still believe that until literally until the second we were, the statement came out, we were suspended. I was like, we're going to be fine. And then even after that statement came out, we were on a, we were on a team zoom with all the staff and everyone. Um, like when the deadline hit and that they hadn't put their statement out yet we were still getting assurances being like we're fine don't worry don't worry and then this statement came out and our ceo read the statement on zoom to everyone i couldn't i couldn't listen to it because i was just like beside myself so i turned my camera off muted it because i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't listen to it um and i was like crying my eyes out just like knew i'd lost my job and stuff and then after that we still were getting messages through being like don't worry we're fine we're gonna we're gonna make this work um everything's all good and by the end of it, everyone was just like, we can't be like, we, I don't know if they were lying or whatever. We can't be told this stuff anymore. Like, we can't be given these false promises anymore because it was just messing with our mental so much. We just lost our, we'd just been told we're suspended and lost our stuff and we're still getting assurances being like, we're fine. We're going to get this. It's going to get over the line. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And yeah. And as I said, then after that Zoom, I hopped off and woke my dog. I was like, I need to go for a walk and <laughs> clear my mind right now. And I was walking around Richmond in tears. This is the All Ears podcast with me, Jeremy Inson. I'm chatting to Saracens prop Ollie Hoskins about his rugby journey that has taken him from Australia all the way to the Premiership. One thing I think that sort of tingled the 
the curiosity of the of the public there was always this talk of the american consortium yeah it'd been probably six months or so and you mentioned you actually met people because the one thing that mm. no one was really able to know who this consortium was where they were from no. what sort of apart from the person you met in those those meetings yeah. uh what what kind of contact or, or knowledge of that consortium did you guys have nothing nothing we had the this uk representative of the thing and we got told some of the names of the people in there and this lawyer who was fronting this um consortium and they told us multiple times that they're going to fly over to the uk and get it done in person there was plans they're going to be at our last game at exeter and it's going to be this big reveal of the new owners and all this stuff. we got told all this stuff and i'm like they can't be lying about it. why would they t- like why would people lie about this like i don't understand the i still I, to this day i don't understand why they tell us all that stuff and it just not happened i was like it's still so confusing to it but like it got to the point where um we weren't getting as a playing like we had as much knowledge as the public we were learning about stuff when it came out because if mick or anyone would tell us stuff as a playing group boys would tell their agents and then it would get out to the media within like it was wild we got told stuff on like private zooms as a playing squad and literally like five minutes later it's in the press it was like what and then I think Mick, and obviously that was making making the deal even more difficult when um, the press is like slamming Mick and London Irish and these American people or whatever. And I think they were just like, okay, we're not telling you guys anything. So for the last couple of weeks, we knew absolutely nothing. We were completely in the dark. We get a little update every couple of days being like, no new news. We're fine. Don't worry. Keep, keep waiting. And yeah, that just heightened the anxiety even more because I had no idea. And I was getting asked by it tens and tens of every single day every time someone saw me have you heard any news what's going on and, blah, blah, blah. and i was like i do not know and to this day i'm telling you this is like another bit of the frustration like we haven't heard boo i'd really i really don't know what went on and i don't know why it got to that point um and yeah and then after it all went down we got like an email from via mick crosman's daughter saying sorry we tried and that's kind of the only communication we had it was like thanks see ya since then, of course, um, before your your latest employment, before yeah. you did get picked up, there is a happy yeah. ending. You've you know you've been very vocal. You've been on quite a few podcasts apart yeah. from this one. Uh, you've had your own Q and A session on, yeah. on YouTube. For you, how important was that sort of that cathartic uh, as part of the recovery from quite a very stressful situation that you've been through? Yeah, it was massive. Like, I also felt like I had a I've been at the club for a long time and obviously I had a very close emotional attachment to the club itself and the fans because as I've I've described in this chat like it has been a very rocky up and down tumultuous road for me with London Irish like I've had points super high points where I've been playing the best record of my career I've had points where I've felt terrible and probably just if, uh, if London Irish had like parted ways with me, I wouldn't have blamed them because there was points where I probably wasn't playing well enough and all that sort of stuff. And they always sort of stuck with me through through my worst periods and stuff. And they always had faith in me and they always told me that I was important to the club and this is their vision for me. And every time it came to ne- negotiating contracts, they never, like I never felt like they were going to sack me off or any of that sort of stuff. And I just, I felt so happy here and grateful and i wanted to be a part of the club so i was the most capped player in the squad i played 160 i think i finished 165 odd games um and yeah i just felt like i needed to you know have some sort of communication with 
the fans and try and give them as much of an insight as I could. And then also, whilst also reminiscing on the good part times of my time at London Irish, for me, it was very cathartic. It was nice to, instead of being bitter and there's so much bitterness and frustration and anger towards how it ended and the manner in which it was, we were like promised all these things and nothing came through. And also I didn't want to have my last memories of London Irish being angry at the, at the, at the demise and bitter. I wanted to, you know, for me personally, like getting all these questions from fans and them asking me and me reminiscing on great times I had there and talking about stuff was really cathartic for me at the same time it allowed me to sort of connect with fans and give them a send off and give them sort of an insight and for me to show my appreciation to to them because yeah I've always felt so much love from the from the Irish fans and I always every time I played I wanted to try and play with like a love and a passion for the club um and I and one of the nicest things for me through this experience of of like doing a Q&As and and trying to get my voice out there a little bit more is so many people reached out to me um, after this all went down, telling me how much they appreciated what I did for the club and how I played and how I interacted with the fans and all that sort of stuff. And for like for rugby players or for me, in general, like I'm just a, I'm just a normal bloke. I'm just a, a guy who goes and plays rugby. And like we're not footballers, we're not we're not celebs. We're not, like we're just we're just normal blokes who go out there and like love the game and we try and go as hard as we can and like the amount of unbelievable messages I got from fans and stuff afterwards showing how much I meant to them and pictures of me with their kids and how I've inspired their kids to go and pick up rugby and I remember this was the, the night of this um or when this came out a fan messaged me on Twitter um and told me the story being like saying how devastated he was that um that Irish had gone down and that I was always been his favorite player for Irish. And he shared with me this story about how his dad passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and the last memory he had with his dad was being in hospital with him and both of them and him showing him that I made the Wallabies um, and his dad smiling and them having a great laugh and stuff about it. And I remember reading this message, even now it still hits me. I met, I read this message and I was just like blown away and just crying my eyes up being like, I can't believe I've had, an impact like this on people's lives, even though it like in comparison to other sports styles and stuff, it's probably very minute. But for me to know that I've had a positive impact on a lot of people just by going out and trying to play with a love and a passion and, and like, and then after games going and talking to them and making sure I always like, whenever fans message me on Instagram or, or congratulate, I always try and reply to every single one of them, even if it's just a quick, like, thank you. Like when I played for the Wallabies, I remember I had like literally like one and a half thousand Instagram DMs from people congratulating me. And I spent like hours just going through and making sure every single one of them, I gave them a thanks or something because I just like, I don't know. I just felt obliged to, they're the, they're the, the light bit, like sort of the heartbeat of a club. Um, and to know that they appreciated that and they saw the passion that I played with and how much the club meant to me, it was just such a, like, it was the, the not the only, but it was one of the positives that came out of this thing is it really showed, showed me how appreciated I was. And I wanted to try and give back to them by giving them some sort of insight into how much Irish meant to me, but, you know, to, even if it was something as simple as talking to a camera for an hour or something, um, that really inspired me to do that. Now, of course, as we as we mentioned at the start, you are now gainfully employed at Saracens, no less yep. the uh, the reigning champions. How did yes. that come about? When did you get the call? Who was it who called you? Did you think mm. it was wind up? And what was that sense of relief just to know yeah. that that you've you've got a job? Yeah. So 
after that first conversation with my agent about probably like three or four weeks before the d-day for irish was where he kind of laid it laid it out to me he was like i'm going to get on we'll get on the phones now and we'll prep for worst case scenario and try and see any feelers out there um and saracens had approached me two years before or a year before that when i signed my extension with irish and they were interested in me then um but i chose state line irish instead of going there so i knew that they had previous interest in me um and that was kind of the first club that my justin my agent was like look i know that um they were keen before um, I'm sure they'll probably reach out soon. Let's see what, let's just sit tight. And he went and put his feelers out. Um, and Nick Kennedy used to be my, he was my first DOR at um, at London Irish. And initially when I signed for Irish, actually the DOR was a guy called Glenn Delaney, a Kiwi bloke and the and Tom Coventry was the head coach. But so when I, when Irish initially recruited me, I was, I was speaking to them. But then at the end, when they got relegated, they got fired. So I never actually met them in person or played for any of them. And Kendo was my DOR when I first uh, came to Irish and me and him had a great, great relationship. And I really enjoyed playing under him. Um, and now he works, he's the head of recruitment at Saracens. So I already had that sort of connection there and Kendo knew me and we'd stayed in contact over the years and stuff. He'd like just, just casually and stuff. We always had a chat when we saw each other. Um, uh, and yeah, Saris are one of the, the first one to kind of, when this all went down, they reached out to my agent and was like, look, we're interested in all, all that sort of stuff. But as I said, like every club is at the salary cap because the salary cap being reduced because of COVID, um, this kind of renew- getting back some of the losses of COVID, I guess. Um, at the end of the last, end of the the recruitment cycle for that season is done. Like the general recruitment cycle for a season is, you might have start having chats for the year after around Christmas time ish, and you get something signed hopefully in the first couple of months of the year before the end of the season, and then you've got some security you know, get towards the end of your contract. You can move into this club where you're staying. You've got this sort of stuff. So that that process had already been done. Um, so clubs are usually at the cap full um, and sort of the only only reason that I, I could have signed with Saris is because of an injury dispensation. They had an injury, a tight head, long-term injury. So then legally they can sort of spend that player's salary over the cap to sign someone else if you have a long-term injury. Um, so Saracens had an injury at tight head and they had this, had had it up, they were looking for a tight end and then so they reached out to my agent Um but at the same time, obviously, like <clears throat> the nature of it, I had no negotiation power, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so, like fiscally, it's it it's it was a, it was a, a massive hit. We have no negotiation power whatsoever. We're sitting there flying the market. They all we have no money. Clubs are also hamstrung because they've already spent the cap, um, and they are only legally allowed to spend X a certain amount. So, I had like uh, Saracens were the first one to reach out and then we're also looking around i had offers from a couple of welsh teams i had teams back in australia i was i was lucky that uh, being a tight head in a market like this it's a lot easier to get a job than if you're a a center or a a so because tight yeah tight heads a specialist position um and it's always a high injury position it's a specialist position so if you're it's it luckily in that in that sense being an international and being a tight head worked in my favor of of my likelihood of getting a job my agent the whole time always reassured me is like you will find employment but be ready it's going to be you it's going to be a rough couple of months where you're not going to get paid and when you do get a job more than likely are you're going to have to take a massive pay pay hit because that's just the way of way of the market um so i knew that was going to be that, that was the case so then sarah's reached out for me they were always number one on my list because uh, as I said before, my life outside of rugby is so important to me and my wife. 
Um, I've got such amazing friends outside of have nothing to do with rugby. Um, all the guys that I'm a nerd with and play Dungeons and Dragons with, I've got a, this group of friends around Richmond that we all go and grab coffees on days off. There's like, a, there's like, we have this WhatsApp group called the Richmond Coffee Club, and none of these guys have anything to do with rugby. These guys I've met around the community around Richmond, um, and there's like ten or twelve of us on there, and we have have this great friendship group that really like allows me to disconnect from rugby, which allows me then in turn to give my full mental effort when I'm in work. Um, so, uh, being able to stay where we are geographically was such was a big big priority for me especially because my wife had just started her dream job literally a week before this all kicked off what was the dream job she's she just trained to be a yoga yoga instructor so she um she was working in corporate london for a couple of years working for a tech startup and it just it just was soul crushed to her she just and then uh, a year or so before this i was like don let's just figure out what you want to do and she's always wanted to be a yoga instructor so she sacked that off and she'd been training this like intensive course it was like a 200 250 hour course where she had to do anatomy exams and learn this ancient indian sanskrit language and go away on these retreats and learn all these sequences it was like a really tough thing she just graduated from that and then straight after that got a the people who ran that program gave her a job at this yoga studio down the road in Richmond. It was just like, everything was perfect. Like I just signed a two year deal with Irish. She's just got her dream thing. She's like kind of in this apprenticeship role, learning to learn to do this and hopefully build up clients and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then this came and it was just as much a rug pull on me as it wasn't her because like, she's like, I was literally like, Dom, I'm sorry. Like if something comes along and the Sarah's thing doesn't come through or whatever, like, we may have to move back to Australia next week. We may have to move to France. We may have to do move here or there. And it's just like, so for me, trying to find somewhere where I could get some geographical stability so my wife can chase her passion as well um, was super duper big for me and allows me to keep my stuff outside of rugby. Um, and then also professionally, um, I knew regardless of where I was going, um, fiscally, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a tight, it's gonna it's gonna be a hit that's just the that's just the way it is so the the finance and stuff weren't the massive priority for me right now it was more where do i feel like i'm going to progress professionally the most be in an environment where i'm going to become the best player i can be i can keep off field stability um i can learn i know some i know some boys there um already and speaking to them like they just rave about the environment and the culture there and how how awesome you're sort of work life balances how awesome the training is how they become better players all this sort of stuff um so i had um had some offers from back had some chats to go back to australia had some short-term like world cup joker deals in france but then that was more of like if i wanted to chase the dollar i could have done that but then i'd be unemployed again and come december um there was all this stuff and for me we just had the most chaotic and tumultuous couple of months in our lives. I was like, I just need some, some stability and something that I can just anchor myself on. Um, and Sarah's came through with a two year deal, which allowed me to stay living where I am, which was really, really big for me and the wife. Um, I now just commute up to St. Albans It's about an hour, an hour and a bit each way. It's a bit of a change in lifestyle. Like I have to get up even earlier now with a dog um, rather than going 10 minutes down the road to Sunbury. It's now an hour and a bit to St. Albans each way. But there was just so many factors that ju it just ticks so many boxes of developing me as a professional player, hearing about the environment, going up there and speaking to the coaches and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, I had a lovely conversation with Mark McCall, the DOR and stuff when I, on my first day there and they sat me down and were like, um, I'd, cause I'd never like, it's, it's weird. Like usually you speak, do this all before you sign with them, but because of the weird nature of it, I just signed and was like rocked up day one. I hadn't spoken to Mark McCall or anyone. Cause it was just like happened so quick. And I had a lovely conversation with him day one. And they were like, Oh, I don't want you to think that, um, this is just like a reactionary thing we've like they i knew they obviously had tried to sign me a couple of years before and stuff and they were like um we've we wanted to have you in the environment effect for for a while and this is where we view you fitting into our plans and all this sort of stuff and it was just such a lovely sort of welcoming thing that really encapsulates the the sort of environment they have there which i've come to know in the last four i've only been there for four weeks but i can already feel how much they care for people and they prioritize their players well-being um so yeah i sat down with them and they were just reassured me that like they wanted me a part of the environment for a while and this isn't a reactionary thing. They're not just like capitalizing on a shit situation and trying to, you know, just, just poach you, that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's been, it's just been a great, a great move for me. It's a very much a silver lining of what's come out of a very, 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 very tough, horrible situation. Um, cause I always wanted to stay at London Irish long-term, but out of a bad, this is the best of a, of a bad situation for sure. And from that, um, from your situation at London Irish, from a mental health point of view, and then making sure that you are you have good mental health that mm. you look after yourself in that regard. What's the big learning that you've taken and and perhaps shared or picked up from the other players who are in that situation as well? For me personally, I've I said this on another pod I was on the other week. If if this had happened three four three years ago, I reckon two three years ago. It would have, uh, it would have absolutely broken me. Um, I was for such a long time. I was so obsessed with rugby, and my whole self identity was, "I'm, I'm Oliver Hoskins, the rugby player." That's me. Like I had, I had, I had friends, I had family, and all that sort of stuff. And then we moved to Richmond, and I um, met all these amazing people outside of rugby. Me and the wife got the dog. We got married, and I built this amazing sort of a support system outside of rugby and diversified my sort of self-identity. I'm not just, I'm not just Oliver Hoskins, the rugby player. Now I'm Oliver Hoskins, the rugby player. I'm the husband. I've got my dog. I've got my mates. I'm the nerd. I've got, I've done my degree. I'm like looking into doing some work experience, sports consultancy stuff. I've got all these aspects to my self-identity now, which previously I didn't, I was Oliver Hoskins, the rugby player. And if rugby was going good, I felt good about myself. And if rugby was going badly, I felt bad about myself. Um, and now everything in my professional life was just, was terrible. The worst it's ever been completely up in the air, no stability, just absolute. If you look at my mind in a box, like this quarter of my life was just anxiety, instability, worry, stress, it, all this stuff. But then the other three, four, five legs of my chair were fantastic. My relationship, my wife was great. My friends were so supportive it was like my life outside of rugby was so awesome that whilst this one area of my life, which is a massive area of my life, I'd like being a professional sportsman, it, it you can't help but be a massive area of your self-identity. But I had so, I felt so much more well-rounded as a person now that even though this big area of my life was so bad, everything else was, was fantastic and allowed me to sort of put things in perspective and navigate this, this crap situation. Knowing that at the end of the day, like, I'm going to be all right. Um, I'm going to be all right. I'm lucky enough. Like even when my, my agent was talking to me about 
all the financial stuff, I was like, it's hard because as a rugby player, like we're not footballers, we don't earn, we don't earn millions and millions and millions of quid. There's the upper echelon of rugby player earns really good money, but the vast majority of boys are earning like earning, earning pretty good money, but it's not like you're we're gonna retire off into the sunset. We have to save our pennies for that day when we retire, and then we're gonna have to join the workforce and that sort of stuff. Um, and I was like compartmentalized stuff and be like, okay, sweet. I'm going to eat into a lot of my savings right now to pay rich and rent and bills and stuff, but I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones who I've got some money put away. I can use this to get through the next couple of months. And then whatever happens after that, at least I'll have a paycheck coming through that can keep the lights on and everything's all good. So, and having my wife and that support system allowed me to kind of look at, take a step back and not be as emotionally charged when I'm making decisions and making stuff on a whim because I'm worried about finances and all that sort of stuff, I can be like, look, my relationship's fantastic. My life is great. I have enough money in the bank to pay the next couple of months of bills, luckily, which I know a lot of the people involved in the club didn't have that luxury. I'm telling you, like some of the off-field staff, some of the younger players, all that sort of stuff, they live paycheck to paycheck. And this is, I, don't, I was speaking to a lot of them, they, are in a, they were, I don't know how they've dealt with it so well because I would have been even more of a wreck than I was. Um, so yeah, having this like well-rounded self-identity just allowed me to sit back and look at this from a bigger perspective and try and take the highly charged emotions out of any decision I was making and try and look long-term of uh, what's important to me really in like what's really, really important to me in life. And rugby is really, really important to me. Saracens ticks the rugby stuff because it's fantastic place. Most more important than rugby to me is my wife, my life outside of rugby, my dog, my relationships, my my happiness, um, and where I am geographically is really really central to how I how happy I am. Um, so that was another major thing in like forming this decision because that me being happy off the pitch straight away makes me a better rugby player always. Um, so yeah, having that well rounded self identity has just allowed me to navigate this system. Oh, sorry, not the system, navigate the situation with so much more clarity than I would have been able to uh, earlier. Because I tell you, if this happened a couple of years ago, I would have been all over the place making silly decisions, probably just trying to recoup losses and uprooting everything to go and try and chase as chase money or or I would have just like I could I could have seen myself just throwing my toys out the pram and be like no I'm done with this because I've had such an up and down journey to get to this point everything was just starting to go good and then this blows up and I honestly could have thought seen myself being like no I'm done like because but this just allowed me to kind of navigate it with a much more level head um so yeah so having a multiple legs to your chair and a good self-identity has just like been massive massive for me well, thank you so much for chatting, taking the time to chat to us. Good luck for the season. Uh, and hopefully some lessons in there for people with their mental health. Uh, but yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. That was the All Ears podcast with me, Jeremy Inson. Thanks for listening. And remember to subscribe and follow us on all the usual social media channels. See you next time.